This is MMA Torch editor Jamie Pennick, and this is the Torch audio update for Tuesday, January 27th, 2009. I'm joined today by Torch columnists Matt Pelkey and Jason Bent for a look back at this weekend's uh, Affliction Day of Reckoning and WEC 38 cards. Guys, we had a lot of MMA on this weekend with uh, you know a couple hours on HDNet for free if you had that at all, and uh, three hours of pay-per-view action and another five free fights from the WEC on Sunday night. So um, a lot of bouts to go through for the weekend. What was uh, what was your biggest memory of the weekend? Your 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 best thoughts on the weekend, and uh, what did you like the most from the two shows that uh, were presented? Matt, we'll start with you. Um, my, my favorite, uh, the lasting impression I, I would say of the two shows was, um, I was very curious to see, you know, how Uriah Faber would respond to a loss, you know, would this kind of be, uh, just the first, you know, chink in the armor that he's shown and would realize he's not this, uh, kind of unstoppable badass juggernaut or would he say, okay, I need to take this more seriously. I can't expect to just come in and blow through everybody every time. And I mean, if he had any critics, he answered them because I know Jens Pulver isn't exactly the fighter that we've known, you know, from years past, but he's still one of the better 145ers that the WC has to offer. And Jen, or excuse me, Uriah just, I mean, the look in his eyes was like he wanted to kill somebody. And he just came out and did not take the pressure off and just brutalized Jens Pulver. And, Obviously, he doesn't have anything against the guy. I mean, he's probably one of his heroes watching the younger, uh, you know, the lighter fighters growing up. But uh, just a, a dominant, dominant performance and, and really showing that he's he's ready to go get his belt back. And that's a great thing for the WEC because he is obviously their one true superstar and they will go as he goes. And it's a very positive step for them that, you know, he came out looking so good. Um the Affliction show I thought was a, a mild thumbs up for me. Um, the action was solid, um, not spectacular, and I had some issues kind of with some of the you know production type of aspects. Um, but mild thumbs up. WEC I thought was a, a great event, and um, you know ha- had we had a nice clean finish in the fifth round of the main event would have been an early uh, contender for for best event of the year, but that kind of left a, a sour taste in my mouth, but all in all, uh, you know, a good weekend of, of MMA. Jason, your thoughts on the weekend? I mean, this was a great weekend of MMA. Uh, my favorite moment has got to be Jose Aldo running into the stands to celebrate his victory at WEC 38. I just thought that was great. Uh, you know, the kid's going to be something special to watch. It was just a fun moment that threw me way off guard. Um, the affliction show was meh. I just, I don't know. It I, it didn't live up to the, the promise that I'd hoped for it to be. I guess maybe I'm too much of a cynic with affliction. Uh, the, the main event was fantastic. Fedor closed the door. He, he's the best in the world. But I think the fighter that stood out from the entire weekend as really making an impression was the cowboy, Donald Cerrone. I, I think the fight with Varner, had it gone, you know, the distance could have been early contender for fight of the year. But as it was, it wins as fight of the weekend for me. Regardless of Fedor's performance, I think Varner Cerrone was fantastic, and especially so when you figure it's in the WEC and it was free of charge. This was a great weekend. No, I'm with both of you guys on that. And, uh, Jason, I'm with you on Cerrone. Uh, the man showed that he can take one hell of a beating 
and still keep pushing and still keep uh, uh, pushing forward and uh, keeping the pressure on. And he, he did throughout that uh, four and a half rounds with Jamie Varner until that unfortunate finish. But um, we'll start with the affliction show and, and kind of get a breakdown on this weekend. Um, you know, the production I'd say improved from band. The commentary team um, was better uh, just for the simple fact that they subtracted Jay Glazer, that uh, that in, a, in and of itself was enough to give them a mild thumbs up on commentary. During the fights, they did a they did a good job commentary. Tito Ortiz was awful in every other area outside of the actual commentary when he was trying to interview people, when he was coming back in between fights, when he was on camera. He just he was really annoying. He was uh, you know pandering to to a couple of the fighters. He was almost trying to goad uh, Babalu into getting hyped up for a fight with him. Um, he butchered Fedor's name multiple times. And uh, it, it was, he was trying, it, it almost seemed like he was trying to make it more about him, which is not the announcer's job. And uh, I mean, we shouldn't have expected anything less out of Tito Ortiz for this, but that was probably the worst part of the production standpoint. Um, as for the event itself, I mean, they took 20 minutes to get to the first fight. They again uh, did the announce everyone on the stage. Uh, I thought it was a little better than having them come down a ramp and line up. Um, I, I kind of liked what they did with this, but at the same time, they wasted 20 minutes working on this, and then they did the Elite XC. Let's announce them before they walk to the ring, announce them in the ring, it just a lot of wasted time. Um, the pacing wasn't the greatest in the show and it took 20 minutes to get into the first fight, which took 20 minutes for one round. Um, our first fight, Bobby green and, and Dan Lozon, Bobby green gets, uh, two points deducted. If it would have gone through that round for three low blows, two of which looked a little iffy, but you know what? If you get hit in the nuts once and you, hit, you get hit a couple more times, it's not going to take a lot to put you down. And you can't fault Lozon for taking the allowed by the rules time to recover because Green was pushing the action wildly. He was swinging wildly, and that's why he caught him low. Um, he was trying to, to keep up the energy and keep up the adrenaline because he took this fight on short notice. But Lozon was obviously the much more skilled fighter and picked up the submission victory with less than 10 seconds left in this fight. Without the low blows, this is still just an okay fight because it was really sloppy, um, really wild with the back and forth. Uh, not a whole lot of skill to it from uh, Bobby Green, who um, listed his fighting style as hood and, uh, you know, it, it was not the way to start the pay-per-view when this was pretty much your entire first 45 minutes of the show. Uh, Jason, your thoughts on the first bout and the opening of the Affliction show? The opening of the Affliction show was, was painful to watch as, as far as the fighters' introductions and on the stage. The only thing missing was if they would have gotten a clown car and had all of the fighters hop out of this one while Tom Atencio ran around squeezing a horn. It was ridiculous looking. Uh, the commentary was solid. No Jay Glazer. Thumbs up for that. But I've had homeless men beg me for, ch for change and show more tact than Tito Ortiz trying to get a fight with Babalu. 
And going back to UFC 1, Bill Wallace's belch is a better memory than the majority of Tito Ortiz's commentary <laughs> on the evening. I mean, I could go back and replay those three seconds over, and it was just more pleasant of a memory to go back to. Um, the first fight was beyond sloppy. It was just, it was foul. It was a foul fest. I do believe that a lot of acting going on uh, was on. It, it just, it really wasn't much of a fight. It was way too sloppy for me, but I have to say Hood now beats Thug Jitsu as far as a style that i got to learn. <laughs> i got to get to the athletic club, and I want to take some Hood MMA classes because, you know, Bobby Green, you know, teach me how. This was just an awful, awful bout that took way too long because of the fouls. Um, it shows me much of nothing. You know, Lozon wins, fine, but th- this was just miserable to watch, and already I just had a very bad taste in my mouth for this pay-per-view card. And I just think it was just the wrong way to start, and things definitely did go downhill for them. Matt, your uh, your thoughts on this opening uh, 45 minutes or so of the show? Well, uh, my my problem with the opening was, you're right, it took way too long to get to that first fight. And I have no issues with, with the uh, you know bringing everybody out on the stage to introduce them before the show. You know, little things like that can kind of set you apart from the UFC. You don't... You don't want to be like a UFC light and just try and copy everything they do. So I applaud them for trying to do something different. And, you know, it's kind of a throwback to the old pride days. Uh, it's not the same without the, the crazy woman announcer who kind of made the pride shows. But um, it, my issue was they kind of like came on and did a video package and then went to the announcers and they broke down the fights a little bit. And then they went to the intro and like then they had another video package or something like that. It was just, you know, you keep telling us basically the same thing like four times in a row when you could have taken half that time, done the intros, had a little bit of breakdown by the announcers, and gotten right to the first fight. Because it took so long, it seemed like as soon as one fight was done, they kind of shooed everybody out of the ring so they could quick get to the, uh, excuse me, intros to the next fight. Um, And I, I like being able to see one fight after another, but for the fighters, you know, don't make them have to be standing on the entrance ramp, basically, waiting for the next fight to be over so that they can immediately start walking down. You know, give them their, their time in between. Give the fans a, a chance to catch their breath a little bit and, and slow things down. It, it was like they took way too long to get started and then went way too fast after that. Um, and as far as the first fight, um, you know, Bobby Green, you got to give him credit. Uh, obviously, he's not the most skilled or experienced fighter, so his solution was, I'm just going to bring everything I have until, you know, one of us gets stopped. And that's what he did, and, you know, he had a couple of fouls, and I honestly think Dan Lozon was a little overwhelmed by the pace and was kind of trying, you know, like you said, to, to take the allotted time to regain his composure and realize, okay, I just need to relax. I'm better than this guy. I can take him out. And that's exactly what he did. Um, you know, I don't think he's a fighter they want to base their division around, but Chris Wardeski is a fighter they want to base their, decision, their division around. And now, once he's healthy, you can have that fight that was supposed to happen, and it'll actually mean something because Dan Lozon has a victory under his belt. So, um, you know, the first fight wasn't good by any uh, measure of the imagination, but Dan Lozon gets the win, and and you can move on to a better fight. 
Next fight of the night was uh, Paul Buentello taking on Kirill Sedelnikov, baby Fedor here, and this was a this was a good fight. I thought it was an enjoyable fight. The third round got a little scary because it was clear that Sedelnikov was out on his feet for pretty much the entire round. Uh, Buentello was very effective in using his reach and not letting Sedelnikov come in and land stuff. Buentello was landing that left jab nicely throughout the fight, did a lot of damage to Sedelnikov, and uh, Baby Fedor was out on his feet throughout the third round, spit out his mouth guard twice, and uh, finally the doctor came in and looked at him. It was clear he was out on his feet, and they called the fight. Um, probably should have had someone look at him after the second round and not even had that third round that third round happened because uh, Sidelnikov was very much out of it. Um, not sure that he knew where he was at the end of that fight, but give Buntello a bunch of credit, uh, taking on a young guy who's got a lot of promise, obviously, in training with Fedor and being the protege of Fedor. Sidelnikov uh, looked good for two rounds, and it was just clear. You know, he's fighting a guy that has a lot more experience, um, has a longer reach. He's not able to to figure it out for the first two rounds. And that's, that's why he wasn't able to do what he wanted to in this fight. And, uh, you know, Buentello picks up the win and is just got really scary at the end of that third round with uh, how Sidelnikov was, was reacting to the fight and still being on his feet and not being finished. And, um, you know, that came into play a little bit later as well on this card. But, uh, Matt, your thoughts on uh, the second fight of the night here? Um, well, you know, it looks like we have another Mark Hunt on our hands because Sedonikov could just sit there and eat punches to the face over and over and over again without falling down. Um, so I guess he's got that going for him. Um, but, you know, it's a good win for Paul Buentello. Um, I don't think Sedonikov is quite at the level that we would assume, you know, Fedor's protege is at, but he does have that moniker kind of, you know, following him around. So it immediately becomes a good win for Paul Buentello. And now, you know, after, you know, Fedor beat Andre Orlovsky, now I'll have the fight with Josh Barnett. If he gets by Josh Barnett, then what? Well, if if Paul Buentello wins one more fight, now the fans have seen him fight three times, um, get him another decent opponent that he can fight next time. If he beats him, all of a sudden you've built up another, you know, somewhat quality opponent. Paul Buentello has fought for the UFC heavyweight title, and uh, despite how he kind of how he looks, you would think he's just a, a brawler of heavyweight. He actually has a pretty good technical boxing base, and uh, you know, really good with his jab. Kind of uses his length well to keep people away, and he has good power. So, I think that would be a a fun couple of minutes uh, of stand up with Fedor before Fedor decided I'm going to take to the ground and submit him, uh, which he could do anytime he wanted to. But um, <laughs> Good win for Buentello and a nice job of possibly setting himself up for a, a main event uh, in the future if, if they are around for a couple more shows. Jason, where were you at with uh, Buentello against Sedelnikov here? Sedelnikov could probably be beaten across the face with a shovel and just keep coming back. Uh, took a ton of punishment. He was definitely out on his feet. He was extremely punch drunk. And this one should have been stopped, I really think. Uh, Montello looked sharp, as sharp as he could possibly look in a fight like this. His jab was just picture perfect. And I have to say that, you know, his boxing base, just like was mentioned, is fantastic. He looked very sharp. And as the fight wore on, 
the jab was, was hitting him like a telephone pole. I mean, it was just hitting hard and landing, and it was just like a laser with its precision. Um, it was nice to see Buontello get a win back uh, on a card such as this. I've always liked the guy. He's always come to fight. Uh, I think he did the best he possibly could in this bout with an opponent that was going to keep coming no matter what. I think you could have taken a brick to him, and he would have spit his mouthpiece out, twirled around, and said, okay, I'm ready to go. Uh, this was nice. As far as looking at the future, as far as a possible opponent for Fedor, I, I really hadn't considered that. I hadn't thought that their future would, would be around so far, but this would be this would be a nice bout after Barnett. It, I see no reason why Buontello, you know, shouldn't get the payday and the opportunity uh, if he wins another fight and looks as sharp in doing so. I, I'm game for that one. I'd be more than willing to watch it. You know, Buontello, he's one of the good guys. He always comes to fight, and he did a fantastic job in this, but I do think the fight should have been stopped, and he was just in very, very bad shape, and I just hope he's completely fine now, but he took a world of punishment. That brings us to the third fight of the night. Um, a completely meaning, meaningless light heavyweight bout between Hanato Babalu Sabral and uh, Sokaju, and... Guys, it's very clear that the Sokaju mystique from Pride is dead. There, I mean, if if it wasn't completely killed in the UFC, it was snuffed out by Babalu completely tonight. It's it's very clear what you have to do. You need to survive Sokaju's onslaught because he's probably going to beat you in the first round. But if you get past that, he doesn't have anything left in the tank, and you're going to be able to beat him, plain and simple. By TKO, by submission, you're going to be able to beat him in rounds two and three. That's what happens with Sokaju. We saw almost the exact same fight against Luis Kane in his last, last UFC bout, except he was uh, TKO'd in that one. And here Sobral picks up the Anaconda choke. I mean, it's a solid win for Sobral, but who does he have to fight in affliction? Who is there in the light heavyweight division that will really pose a challenge to Babalu? It, it's just not there for affliction. If he's not in the UFC light heavyweight division, he doesn't have competition there to continue his standing as a top 10 fighter, which he is. I mean, he's, he's, he is good enough to hang with those guys, but without fighting that competition, I, it's hard to justify him in there. It's the same reason that a lot that uh, Dana White gives for why he doesn't consider Fedor the best because outside of the fight against Arlovsky here, he hasn't been fighting the top competition in the last few years. And, I mean, it's a solid argument to make. It's not to say that Fedor's not the best fighter in the world, because he very well could be. But at the same time, you still got to be competing against the other best fighters in the world. That's just not there for Sabral in the light heavyweight division anywhere other than the UFC. Sokaju is never going to be anything more than a um, solid fighter who can show up for a round and a half. He can beat some tomato can guys. He's not going to be... Um, a world beater like he was in pride. Um, but at the same time, if he gets that, uh, that gas problem down and, and he can, he can go in later rounds and he can continue to push the pace like he does in the first round of, of his fights, that could change. If he moves up in weight that uh, he, he might have some success against, uh, some, some larger guys as well. Uh, cause he's got the power there to be a heavyweight fighter as well. Um, but I'm just not seeing it from Sokaju at all. It was almost a uh, picture-perfect example of 
what he does uh, going right along with the Louise Kane fight. And uh, speaking of that, this this fight was also the picture picture perfect example, per, picture perfect example of why a cage is far superior for MMA. I mean, multiple through the rope stops and having to restart them in different positions in the middle of the ring. I mean, it just it's kind of ludicrous to have them up against the rope and have to put them right into guard in the middle of the ring, put them in a cage. You don't have that problem. So Jason, where were you at on the Babalu and Sokaju here? Well, as far as the ring versus the cage, I loved pride. I've always hated the ring. The cage is perfect for MMA. I I just don't like it. It always feels like it's a boxing ring and we're going to have an MMA show. I just think now you've got to have a cage. I think it's firmly established that this is MMA in most folks' minds. And aside from that, it looks like you rented a boxing or wrestling ring. Um, the myth that is Sokaju has been, you know, revealed. He is no longer what anyone thought he once was or could be. And he's kind of like a, a wide receiver who runs a great 40-yard dash, great vertical at the combine, but just can't make any plays on the field late in the game. You just wonder what happened to him. He has all these physical gifts but he, he doesn't have that game speed. And Sokaju ha- can come out with a head of steam, but once he loses it, he's done. and He's just gasping for breath. Uh, you know, Babalu took care of business, but who does he have next? He's got nobody. And I think a guy like Fedor survived fighting no one. I think he's that good that he was able to push himself in the gym and just maintain the level of where he was. But a fighter like Babalu, his skills are going to erode. When you're not pushed by top competition and there's no one to face, there is no reason to train harder, and I think he'll be treading water. There's nothing for him. A fight with Tito is a name kind of fight, but I just don't think it's a proper fight for him, and the competition for him is in the UFC if he could ever come back, which is probably impossible. Uh, The fun part of this fight for me is you've got Sokaju Babalu. And I can't help but think of the 1980s breakdance movie, Breaking to Electric Boogaloo. That's all I kept thinking of. Sokaju Babalu. Sokaju Babalu. I, I had to entertain myself a little bit because Sokaju is just, he's not much of anything anymore. And Babalu did exactly what he was supposed to do. I would watch Tito versus Sabral, but uh, there's nothing left for him in affliction. They're, they're running out of fights. They're running out of fighters. And, the end is near for, for just about everybody involved with the promotion because what's next? I don't see much next at all. Matt, your thoughts on the, the third fight here of the night? Well, I have to give Babalu credit because he kind of has a tendency to be goaded into brawls with guys he shouldn't be brawling with, like uh, Chuck Liddell the second time he fought him and uh, Jason Lambert in one of the last fights he had in the UFC. Um, and I kind of had a feeling this that's what would happen here. He would uh, want to say, well, I, you know, I have, I have great stand-up. I'm going to show it against a, a stand-up fighter, and he was going to get knocked out within, you know, two minutes. But he fought the smart fight. Um, he tried to take it to the ground. He, he, he closed the distance. He didn't let Sokaju just, you know, sit back and pick him apart. And he, you know, waited out the... Uh, the Sokaju two-minute onslaught, and, and then he's easy pickings after that. Um, I almost feel like Sokaju needs to, to kind of go to a smaller show where the lights aren't shining so brightly on him for the time being. You know, somebody feed the guy a can, for goodness sake, so he can get his confidence back up. 
He's one and three in his last four fights, and even that one win was not a terribly overly impressive win against Nakamura, who's not nearly the fighter we thought he was in Pride either. So go somewhere where you can fight somebody who you don't feel the pressure of fighting and, and get a couple wins under your belt. Get your gas tank going, for goodness sake, and then come back to the big show. Um, as far as Babalu goes, there's obviously you know two fights come to mind as far as what does he do next. Uh, Tito Ortiz, obviously, is the, the big one. I guess because of name value, that one is intriguing. Fight-wise, I just wouldn't be that excited about seeing it. Tito's kind of past his prime. Babalu is, is still somewhat relevant, I think, in the light heavyweight division, but I don't think he'll ever be an elite, elite fighter um, with the current crop of 205ers, uh, which are just ridiculous right now. And the other one is against Little Nog, and stylistically, that matchup is a nightmare. Um, neither guy has any power on the feet. Nog has good technical boxing, but nothing special. And then they're both really good on the ground, but good enough to where they're just going to negate, negate each other, and it's going to be a positioning battle for 15 minutes. So I guess you wait around for the Tito fight, and then what? That's literally the last marketable 205 fight that they have to put on, unless they start bringing over other people, but everybody else is currently signed to deals with UFC, so I don't know where they would go from there. So um, kind of at a standstill in that division, but, you know, nice win for Babalu. That's kind of the whole theme for for this show, though. Is is now what? I mean, that's 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 what it is for Affliction. That's their entire theme. Now what? What do you? What do we have next? Uh, I mean, there's only so many times that you can throw pretty much the same card with the same faces, um, just fighting different people. Because that's basically what this was with Band. You saw a lot of the same guys that you saw at Affliction Band, just fighting different guys. And, I mean, you can't continue a promotion with that, and they don't have anyone else to step into those spots. Um, Our fourth fight of the night here resulted in one of the scariest stretches, I think, that I've seen in an MMA uh, program in a long time. Uh, Vitor Belfort caught Matt Lindland with a, a left hook that knocked him down. The first shot that he threw when he got on the ground knocked him out. And, uh, Two more shots were allowed to to get through that bounced Lindland's head off the mat, and he was unconscious. Um, I mean, the look the, when his eyes opened the first time, and he was just staring blankly. It was it was that was the one of the scariest sights that that you can see in any type of combat sport is a guy just staring blankly because he's not there, and he tried to fight with the people that were trying to. Um, keep him down to to let him recover before he tried to did any more damage to himself just by trying to get up at the wrong time. Um, he was clearly out of it for another good five minutes here. Uh, they got a neck brace on him, and finally he came to his senses enough where he told them that he didn't want the neck brace. They had actually brought a stretcher in the ring. Um, I mean, this is just this is scary as hell. And the last two shots that Belfort was allowed to connect on were just absolutely inexcusable. They showed on the replay after the knockdown, the ref was up there. The first shot got in, he stalled. He went up like he was going to stop it, and he he just stood there and allowed two more shots to get in. 
as a as a referee in an MMA bout, that is something you cannot let happen. When it's when it's clear the guy is not defending the first shot, he's not going to defend the second and the third. You you can't let them take unnecessary punishment when Belfour is just <laughs> laying them down like he did there. Um, that was, was absolutely inexcusable and something that you just you cannot have in today's MMA because with how many detractors there are out there stalling things in New York for getting it regulated, stalling things elsewhere, those that view this as still a barbaric sport, Affliction just gave them another uh, another bullet in their gun with that fight there and with what happened with Matt Linlin. Thankfully, he's okay. Thankfully, it wasn't anything major after that. But that 10-minute stretch and the look in his eyes right there, you have one of those detractors that's in a uh, decision-making position in New York that's in a decision-making position somewhere else that uh, can determine whether or not this sport gets exposure in a certain area. They have that in front of them. That can shut the door right there despite all the other good things about the sport. So that's just a, a bad piece of refereeing in my eyes to let those last two two shots go in. Matt, am I off base here, or were you at the uh, spot that I was? No, I, I agree with you. Um, I don't know if I can entirely vilify the referee in this situation because it, it happens so fast, and I know we watch it on slow-mo and we see, man, look at that, he is out there. Why are these other shots going through? But, you know, in in real time, they happen so fast, and, and it's really unfortunate that he he couldn't have stepped in beforehand. Obviously, he could have stepped in beforehand, but you know he he probably doesn't want to be known as the guy who doesn't give fighters a chance. But you kind of can't take that chance because because of the circumstances and and because as they you know I know it's annoyingly cliche as they said it about a hundred times on this show alone. But you know the the safety of the fighters is paramount, and you you have to make sure. They're okay, and this is the the second time, to my memory now, that we've seen Matt Linlin knocked out that bad. Um, you have to go back a few years to where he fought uh, Dave Terrell in the UFC, where he got caught with a big punch and then also took a couple more big shots on the ground, and he was just lights out. And, you know, Matt Linlin is 37, 38 years old, which uh, isn't old in... in you know, real-life terms, but in the fight game, you know, you can't be taking big, unanswered shots to the head, especially from a guy like Vitor Belfort, who has crazy power and crazy fast hands. Um, so you're not off base. Um, I I can't fault the referee too much. I mean, he, he there certain, certainly have been situations where fighters have taken more unnecessary shots than this, but on a big show like that, you have to be you have to be good enough and quick enough to to step in. Um, other than that, you know, Vitor Belfort seems to be back, and that's exciting. Um, talk about a division in affliction that has nothing else. He's beaten Terry Martin and uh, Matt Lindlin now, so I think that's the entire three-man 185 division in affliction. Um, I guess he can move up to 205 and fight Babalu if. They feel like that's an option, but I'd really like to see him come back to the UFC. He's been gone for years. Uh, he was constantly not living up to his potential. Um, I think there were some steroid issues back in there somewhere, but 
he's obviously, you know, fought a couple times back in the States now with Affliction, so those should be cleared up, and I, I think it's time for him to, to come fight the, the big dogs in the 185 division. Um, I know that wouldn't be a good thing for Affliction's future, but unless they use the, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars of, of backing that they have from Donald Trump, Golden Boy, and M1, um, you know, unless they pull a WCW-type talent raid, it all comes back to, you know, going back to the UFC. So I, I, that's where I would like to see Vitor Belfort go since there is literally nothing left for him to do in Affliction. No, I agree with you on Belfort. I mean, it was um, impressive power that he showed to, to take Linlin out with what was basically almost a, a looping, stretched left hand. Um, it wasn't a full-on flush, but he caught him nicely on the chin and knocked him down. And I guess that's one of my biggest problems here, too, is you know there's a fine line between allowing a fighter to continue and to recover and knowing that if a fighter's knocked down 25 seconds into the fight, there's a big chance that first shot knocked him out. You know, there's a big chance that first shot was was just about it. And there's also you also got to know the difference between when there's not anything on the line and when there is. I mean, Randy Couture took a bunch of shots from Brock Lesnar that, you know, probably should have been stopped uh, earlier with how many hammer fists that Brock got in there. But at the same time, you got to let the champion have a chance to recover. Here, this is on Affliction's second pay-per-view with two fighters who haven't fought very often in the last couple of years. If he's knocked down 20 seconds into the fight, protect him so he can fight another day. I guess that's my big thing with this, and uh, one of the reasons that it, it, it bugged me so much because of how much he was clearly out and hurt by those last two shots. Um, Jason, where were you at on the, this Linlin Belfort incident? scary, scary fight to watch. Um, I want to say horrible officiating, but I say this because just like fighting, learned techniques, it becomes, you have an instinct. And I think same thing with officiating. It's that instinct, and I do believe he stalled because he was like, this is Matt Linlin. This is a major show. I'm going to give this guy, you know, that veteran respect. It was the wrong thing to do, but I do believe this referee at the moment he made a huge mistake. Uh, he didn't pull the trigger when he should have, but in his mind, he probably thinks he did the right thing for all parties involved. Uh, at Linwin's age, this is scary, scary stuff. And uh, as far as the, the political leanings and, and trying to get uh, MMA sanctioned in New York, this is not the kind of fight you want anybody to see because we can discuss the, the beauty of the sport and, and how everyone is just a respectful athlete and, and it's all about fighter safety. You show somebody the highlight reel of this one where the guy is just knocked out ice cold and his head bouncing off the canvas, they're going to look at you and say, oh, this is barbaric, and they're not going to listen to any further commentary you're going to even try and provide, which is wrong, but that's how they operate. Uh, this was just a scary, scary incident and, and as far as the a knockout, and then more shots coming. Uh, it calls to mind, uh, I look back to Pride 13, uh, Henzo Gracie, Dan Henderson. When Henderson knocked him out, and he was out before he hit the canvas, and then he proceeded to land another two or three shots before the referee you know, got in there and got him off of him. This was a much worse of a, of a situation, but uh, that's what I remembered. Uh, it was scary stuff to watch. 
I'm a huge fan of, of Matt Lindland for what he has meant to the sport as far as with Team Quest and being such an ambassador. And it's a nice thing that he was able to walk out of the ring under his own power. I, I don't think I would have recommended that. I would have erred on the side of caution and said, no way, no way, not having it on my watch. But he did so, and he is okay. Uh, this was scary. As far as Vitor Belfort, he needs to make good on his unfulfilled promise, and the place to go to do that is the UFC. He is reborn. He is much better than, than I've seen in years, and he needs to come home. He needs to go back to where he was supposed to do so many great things while he has a chance to do them. It just makes good sense for both he and the UFC, and it, it's just great sense all around. Affliction doesn't have many future potential fights for him. I mean, overall, they've got less fights uh, for the future than Charlie Brown has outfits. I mean, it's just it's bad news, and he's going to have to go back to UFC to make good on his unfulfilled promise and achieve the success that he needs to achieve at this point in his career. As good as he looks, he's got to go to the big show. And Affliction just isn't it. UFC is the granddaddy of them all. He's got to go back uh, for Linland. It's time to reevaluate things. At his age, with two brutal knockouts, I wish him the best. He'll probably fight again, but this was scary stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And after the fight is uh, Tito Ortiz making yet another asinine comment when he said that he believed Belfort would take out, what's his name? Oh, yeah, Anderson Silva. Um, sorry, Bel- Belfort's, Bel- Belfort looked impressive against Matt Lindland and uh, picked up a big victory. You don't say that he's going to take out the best fighter on the planet outside of Fedor. I'm going to give Fedor that nod with his performance against Andre. But at the same time, Anderson Silva is is far too good of a fighter for you to say, yeah, to just completely disrespect him like that and go Belfort beat, oh, yeah, what's his face? Anyway, uh, that brings us to fight number five, Josh Barnett against Gilbert Ivel. Um no real fireworks in this. Uh, this was pretty much Barnett from the outset. Um, he should have finished this one in the first round. Pretty much had the mount for almost an entire two rounds in this fight. Um, but Ival kept it interesting by trying to mount some offense from the bottom while he was mounted. He was giving Barnett fits and not allowing Barnett to uh, to do, I guess, what he wanted to do. Um Barnett really should have just postured up and used his position to to pound Ival out because it was dominating uh, throughout the two round two and a half rounds that it lasted, and he finally made him uh, actually tap out to strikes, which according to BJ Penn makes Gilbert Ival a bitch. But uh, that that was a, a good showing from Barnett, dominant showing from Barnett. What we expected from Barnett as a top five heavyweight in the world against someone that, you know, Ivel's showed some dominance and some power in the bat in the past, but not against any one of Barnett's uh, stature. And Barnett was just a much better fighter and out of Ivel's league here and really should have finished this one in the first round, but they kept it enjoyable at least. So it was a, uh, it was a good fight in that sense. And, and Ivel kept himself alive until he just, he couldn't take it anymore. Uh, Jason, your thoughts on Ivel and Barnett. Uh, th- this served as a good infomercial for Josh Barnett as far as, uh, you know, here's the next guy that's going to fall to Fedor. Uh, it-, it was like a cat playing with a mouse, 
and the mouse finally killed himself to get it over with. And that's what Ivel did by tapping out because this one should have been finished long before that. And it was kind of like he was just sort of having fun or, I don't know, it, just, it looked very, very lazy. But Barnett is looking so good that, you know, it kind of looks easy. Of course, this is going to change when he gets in there with Fedor. But this was a good fight for what it was. It was a lot more fun to watch than it really should have been. Um, I'm definitely not calling Ivel a bitch or declaring it a bitch move. In fact, I'd tell him it was the bravest thing ever or risk just getting all hell beat out of me by him. But uh, Barnett goes on from this to, to fight Fedor, and after that I have no clue, but we at least know who the next contestant is for you know the game show fall to Fedor. It's on. Uh, but yeah, for what this was, it was good, and you know, Ivel didn't stir up any scene or calls a ruckus, and it, it was peaceful. He tapped out, Barnett wins, and you know, we move on, and we have a, a main event for the next Affliction card, whenever it may be. Matt, your thoughts on Barnett's performance here? Uh, this is another case where I have to to give um, the winning fighter Barnett credit for fighting the smart fight. Uh, same as with uh, the Babalu Sokaju fight. Uh, Barnett also has a history of of uh, getting into brawls when he shouldn't, especially against guys who he shouldn't be brawling with. And uh, Ivo is definitely that. You know, his his world is the stand-up game, and he has better stand-up than, than Josh Barnett. Um, Barnett took him down like he was supposed to, worked right to mount, um, had him in mount for a full two minutes at the end of the first round. I give Ivo a lot of credit for surviving because in that first round, Barnett was actually pounding him pretty good and it was pretty close to being stopped at the end, but Ivel just did survive. Then, in the second round, I think Barnett had him in mount for like four minutes, which is just unreal. And I honestly think Ivel did more damage from the bottom than Barnett did from the top in the second round. Um, then the third round, obviously, he went right to mount again, and I think Ivel said, this is ridiculous, I can't get out of his mount clearly, I'm tired of getting punched in the face. I'm getting out of here. Um, and I, I'm okay with the fight because Barnett knew the last thing I can afford to do here is lose to Gilbert Ivel. Despite what Tom Tencio said of uh, the winner of the Fedor-Arlovsky fight is going to fight the winner of the Ivel-Barnett fight, obviously he wasn't saying that with you know Gilbert, Gilbert Ivel winning the fight in mind. Um, Josh Barnett had to get a win here, and he did what he had to do. If he was he he was apparently willing to grind out a a three round decision spending two thirds of the fight in mount, um, but he got the win and that's all that matters. People will forget about this by the time the hype starts rolling around for the big Josh Barnett Fedor fight, which you know there's still two of the top five heavyweights in the world, so that's that's a good fight, and it's been years in the making. I know they say they're they're friends, but. Uh, apparently you get like millions of dollars for losing to Fedor, so Josh Barnett's not going to turn that down. Um, he'll get his, you know, five hundred thousand dollar check, which will still be more than Fedor's for whatever reason. Um, but that's the that's the fight that gets set up. It wasn't a very exciting fight to watch, but he did what he had to do, and we'll move on from here. And and that's of course if Affliction makes it to a third show. Um, you know, I'm I stick by my fifty thousand pay per view buy prediction on this on this show. I don't think it could have done any more than that, especially with the news out from 
spike on the rating that UFC 91 did on Saturday night, bringing in over 3.3 million viewers right around uh, 11.15 Eastern time, um, right in the thick of things with that Affliction show. Uh, So I I don't think that with UFC 94 coming up this Saturday, there's any way they got anywhere close to 100,000 buys for this pay-per-view, plain and simple. And that brings us to the main event of this fight, which was pretty much the entire selling point um, because the entire selling point for Affliction is Fedor. That's all they've got. That's plain and simple um, in terms of getting anyone to watch the product. All they have is Fedor Emelianenko. And the main event lived up to the hype. Andre Arlovsky gave Fedor more than any other fighter has given him in a long time. He put up three minutes of some very good boxing with some good footwork. He was giving uh, Fedor fits, and despite Fedor saying after the fight that he wasn't in trouble at all, he was he thought it was even up until uh, the knockout. It wasn't even. Andre was getting the better of him for three minutes, decided he was going to go for something that's worked for him in the past with that flying knee, but Fedor's instincts are far too good and his hands are far too heavy. And that right hand that came down the corner was just awesome and dropped Andre Arlovsky out cold. Um, I mean, Fedor is the best fighter on the planet. He can, he can win a fight from pretty much any position you can possibly think of. And he's shown that time and time again, you cannot bet against Fedor. But Andre Arlovsky got a million and a half dollars to lose in three minutes and 15 seconds after Tim Sylvia got $800,000 to lose in 30-some seconds to Fedor. I don't understand how Affliction thinks that they can stay in business when their payroll is over $3 million and they have a nearly identical card to their first one with a couple of different faces thrown out, how they think they're going to be able to sell a third and a fourth show when they're not going to have enough people buying this one when their payroll is at where it's at. I just, I don't understand, but you know what? At least the main event they presented here was exactly what needed to be seen from Fedor and Andre, you know what? He got caught. He was working his game plan and he got caught, but he was given Fedor fits. He can give himself that, little nugget in the back of his head and now he's going to go off to boxing and who knows what we'll see from him there. But uh, Matt, where were you at on the main event? I, I can't help, but keep thinking what could have been. Um, Andre looked very good in this fight and it's come out since the fight that, you know, Fedor apparently was not training that hard for this fight and was just kind of, you know, relying on what he had done in the past to, to get him through. And, Arlovsky was winning that fight. Um, the the push kick that pushed Fedor under the ropes right before uh, the big, you know, knockout punch. Right before that, uh, Andre caught Fedor with a punch that looked like it, it staggered him a little bit, and that's when he pushed him with the push kick. And, and Fedor looked not, not out on his feet, but kind of like a I-didn't-expect-to-be-in-this-position uh, kind of look. And... If Andre Arlovsky had just stayed on his feet and not thrown, if he had backed Fedor over into the the corner and and just kept using his his hands like he had been doing the three minutes leading up to that, who knows? Who knows what might might have happened? He may have toppled the myth known as Fedor. But 
he went for the flying knee, his glass jaw reared its ugly head, um, and what's most amazing to me about it was when he jumped in the air and Fedor, you know, took a wild swing at him, he was punching Andre as if he was about seven foot eight and knocked him out of the air from that high. Um, I mean, that's Fedor, you know, it, it, you never know how he's going to win a fight. Um, this certainly wasn't the most trouble I've ever seen him in, but it kind of felt like, hey, we might actually get to see a great Fedor fight uh, with him in some trouble. And it never came to fruition. But the knockout was great, and the, the few minutes leading up to, to that were, were very very good, very compelling action. Um, I would like to see them fight again if there's ever a forum for that. But um, if not, Fedor moves on to Josh Barnett, and then fingers crossed, maybe, I don't know how many fights he has left on this contract, but maybe he can uh, finally make his way over and uh, and, and fight you know, Randy and, and Brock, and uh, I know that's that's what everybody wants to see. Let's let's not kid ourselves. Um, that's what we want to see, and hopefully we'll get to see it in the somewhat near future. I don't have high hopes that that'll happen, but a Brock Les- if Brock Lesnar gets past Frank Mir in their rematch, um, which early predictions I think he will, that's just early thoughts, but if he does that, a fight between Fedor Emelianenko and Brock Lesnar, we keep saying it with each successive show, but would be by far the biggest fight in MMA history. Not just UFC history. That would be the biggest fight in MMA history, plain and simple. Um, will we ever see it? That's that's going to be up for debate for a long time, but it would be huge. Uh, and, yeah, like you said, you, you never know how Fedor is going to do it, but it seems to be the case that you just know he's going to find a way. I, I don't know how you can bet against him uh, at any fight ever. I just, I don't know how you can do that with him showing time and time again that he just, he can finish people. Even if he looks like he's in trouble, he can do it. Jason, your thoughts on the main event here. I think this was actually the perfect for the main event to turn out for this pay-per-view because had Fedor walked all over him and took care of him in 40 seconds, it just wouldn't have been good for anybody. I think, it, you know, he showed, he, Fedor showed he was a little bit vulnerable. He's kind of like a rock band putting out a ballad. We've seen his tender side now. You know, for about a couple of minutes, Orlovsky took it to him. Uh, as far as Freddie Roach and the boxing, Roach can't fix that jaw. I'm sorry. He can move on to boxing and, and try his hand at that. But his boxing skills are not that sharp, and his jaw definitely is not. Uh, you know, Fedor's got old man strength. It's going to be with him until the day he dies. I, I think you know he can be pushed around and pushed around, and then out of nowhere, wham, it's over. It's just finished. He is the best fighter on the planet because this was the very best Andre Arlovsky could ever be up to this point. And he crushed him. He knocked him out ice cold. He was losing the fight but he finished him off, hit the home run to end it, and right now he is the best fighter in the world, and there is no other heavyweight fight more anticipated than just the, the thought of Brock versus Fedor. Not necessarily because I think Brock could compete against him right now. I just think Fedor is on another planet. But if anybody can, if anybody could get to that level, it's a guy of Brock's size and capabilities. And you figure in a year or so, if he is successful, gets past Mir and moves on, 
you've got a potential for I mean, it's a license to print money. It's a license to print money. This is millions of dollars for everybody involved. And speaking of millions of dollars, the payroll for this fight was obnoxious. Arlovsky's pay was ridiculous. Um, Tom Green, on the upcoming edition of The Apprentice, is probably going to have a plan to sell hot dogs that is more fiscally solvent than the whole idea of payroll for affliction fighters. This was just retarded. Donald Trump would take everybody into the boardroom and tell them they're fired. I mean, this is as bad as, like, Gene Simmons' idea for Kodak, if you watch the show. And here's Arlovsky with enough money to buy a couple of, uh, a couple of Egg Harbor yachts and put Fedor's right hand on the back of it. It's just bad business to, to pay your guys this much. Uh, you know, this would be like a McDonald's opening up and, uh, you know, paying the guy on fries 14 bucks an hour, you know, to take everybody from Burger King. It's just bad for business. It's not the way to operate. But this was the way that the, the main event should have gone. This was perfect. We got to see Fedor get one up for a little bit, and then he sent everybody home happy because this is the result everybody wanted to see, unless you were, in fact, you know, a fan of Arlovsky's or pulling for the upset. But Fedor's king. This proves it, and this was a nice way to, to end, the, end the night for affliction and uh, you know, send it home on, on a note where you're like, the best fighter in the world? might not fight for the UFC. That's the only thing Affliction can possibly say because other than Fedor, they've got nothing. And once Fedor is done with Barnett, I have no idea what you do next if they even have another card. I, I don't know how you set... I, I don't know what they could possibly have waiting in the wings to put together for a card past a third one. I mean, yeah, you've got the match, the, the fight with Barnett and Fedor, what in the hell else could they put together that could sell a fourth pay-per-view? I don't, I don't know that they'd have anything. I mean, you're going to get to the, the point where it's, it's Fedor against, against a bunch of tomato cans getting paid two, $3 million a fight to come in and get beat by Fedor. That's just, that it seems to be the, the way they want to go with it. Um, but they just don't have anything there that they can set up past, Fedor Barnett, and I don't, I don't know how they can possibly think that they can ever compete with the UFC without having uh, the fighters that the UFC has. Because, yeah, it, it makes people think the best fighter in the world might not fight for the UFC. It doesn't make them think, wow, the best fighter in the world fights for affliction. Exactly. They don't think that. They don't think that. It's, it, they may not fight for UFC, but that, it's, they still want to see him there. Plain and simple. They still want to see him there. Um, and then, you know, they end this show with an hour left in their allotted pay-per-view time. And the Jay Heron versus Jason High fight that was cut from the HDNet broadcast due to time does not make the pay-per-view broadcast either. And yet Dan Lozon against Bobby Green does. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand that one bit. You you could have cut the Bobby Green Dan Lozon fight because Green was stepping in on, uh, you know he was stepping in on three days notice and he got to get on one of the two broadcasts and yet Jay Heron and Jason High who are on this fight uh, on this fight card for a long period of time get no exposure at all uh, that was a little ridiculous way to end the show when you've got an entire hour left um, on the pay per view time so. Uh, it just an, uh, that's a little nitpicky to that one, but when they show the Lozon Green fight on pay-per-view, 
why not have the Hieron High fight there? That would have made much more sense to put there, um, especially when you when you consider that it was almost HD Net's call keeping the Hieron High fight on there, and then they cut it. So that was a little annoying at the end of the show. But otherwise, with the main event, it sent people home happy, and overall, it was an enjoyable three hours to watch for the fighting and the main event. A lot of frustrating things with the show though. And you just, you're left with more questions of what can they possibly have to keep going as a company. And they show six fights in their three hour time. And we get to the WEC on Sunday night where they show five fights in two hours time, almost two full fights in the first half hour of the show. Uh, when it took them 20 minutes to get to the first fight on uh, on the Affliction broadcast. So um, we we switch gears here and get to that WEC show, which was delayed in an asinine decision for versus to air Sports Soup after the overrun of the All-Star game in its entirety, pushing the live fight show back an extra 10 to 15 minutes losing whatever lead-in they could have had from the NHL because I don't know who would stick around to watch that sports suit program. It's not, um, I mean, it's not awful, but it's it's not that funny. And uh, it certainly wouldn't keep people sticking around to check out the WEC after unless they were already planning on watching in the first place. But this was just a great show start to finish. It was WEC back back on all cylinders uh, hitting on all gears, showing, showcasing the best of what their promotion is about until the final segment with the, the final round of the main event. But up until that point, this was just a great show with uh, you know a couple of young guys getting showcased. Uriah Faber just absolutely decimating Jens Pulver and reestablishing that, yeah, Mike Brown might be the featherweight champion right now, Leonard Garcia is a great challenger for the featherweight title. I would I would not want to be facing this Uriah Faber that's hungry to get his uh his belt back right now. So um Jason, your your overall thoughts quick on the WEC show. I know you said the Aldo running into the stands fight, uh into the stands was your favorite part of the, of that night, but outside of uh Jose Aldo's performance, what else stood out to you um from the WEC show here? Uh Uriah Faber is dedicated. Uh, I mean, he, he's another fighter. I'm not even going to put him on the level of a BJ Penn, but he is one of those naturally talented guys who maybe wasn't pushed as hard as he should have been or could have been. And I think he faltered. He got a little complacent. He was reckless against Brown. He paid for it. He learned that lesson. And while I do believe Jens Pulver is shot, I think Faber is just that good right now, that sharp, determined, and dedicated to get his belt back and there was no chance for any version of Jens Pulver to come up with anything to, to topple Uriah Faber. Faber comes out of this show looking like the star that the WEC had always pushed him to be as far as the face of the promotion. This guy is for real. Uh, the main event was just fantastic. Uh, even though it ended kind of sort of in the manner it did, it still went to the cards. It still went to a decision, which was the proper decision. It sets up a great rematch. This was an awesome, awesome night for the WEC. 
which is everything their their show at WEC 37 was promoted to be and and failed to meet. This one meted and exceeded every single expectation for it. Um, Jose Aldo is a future star. Uriah Faber is going to get his belt back. And we've got a lightweight championship rematch that is must-see TV. This is a great time for the WEC, and it was a fantastic card for free. Matt, what else stood out to you about uh, this show outside of Faber? The way I look at it is, this is what happens when everybody comes to fight. Um, as opposed to Affliction, that was a mild thumbs up for me, and, and nothing was particularly bad about the fighting, but there was not like any truly even that exciting moments, save for you know Fedor's knockout punch of Barlowski. In the WEC show, every fighter brought everything they had from the moment the bell rang until the the moment the fight was over. Um, it it kind of reminded me of uh, UFC 91, where you had a lot of first-round finishes, but they were great before the finish. Um, And then you had an epic, well, what would have been an epic main event. Um, I honestly felt like if they had finished up that fifth round going uh, at the pace that they had, that was pushing a five-star fight. Um, It didn't obviously have the importance of, you know, a Brock Lesnar-Randy Couture type of fight, but it was a title fight. And those guys just absolutely laid it on the on on the line for four plus rounds, and it was fantastic to watch. As was every other fight on the card. It was just I I can't say a bad word about this um, because everybody just came to fight from the opening bell. It was it was great. We started off with Jose Aldo uh, taking on Rolando Perez here in a featherweight bout, and uh, it's very clear from this one-round fight from Jose Aldo and anything else you may have seen from him before this fight, that he is going to be a force to be reckoned with in the featherweight division. Um, a lot of energy, a lot of power. Um, dominated early with uh, some hard leg kicks and uh, some flurries and punches, and he, he kind of had Perez backing up early. Uh, Perez started to gain a little bit and, and trade with him a little bit, get some kicks in of his own. Then uh, as he shot in, Aldo placed a picture-perfect uh, perfect timed knee right to Perez's jaw that dropped him, and he followed it up with a couple of to finish this one out. Um, and in this one, it was a case of he, it wasn't a couple of unnecessary shots. It was enough to get the spin there and know that Perez was done. And Aldo bolted out of the cage uh, as as soon as the bell rang and ran up the stands. And Jason, like you said, just a great visual and great to see that kind of heart and passion from a guy for the fans to just get up there and celebrate with all them and just kind of get a little giddy about his win. It was kind of nice to see. It's a little change of pace um, from some guys. And it, it was a nice... Um, Unique moment for Jose Aldo there. Uh, Matt, where were you at on this fight? Well, uh, first off, I, I, I want to say give, we got to give credit to Rolando Perez here because this was his debut fighting, uh, you know, one of the rising stars in the 145-pound division. And he fought a very, very good fight. Uh, definitely, I think, earned himself another, uh, at least another shot in, in the WEC. Um, was 
standing more or less toe-to-toe with Jose Aldo through the first, you know, four minutes of that fight. And then just a a beautiful uh, knee knockout, almost like a punch. I mean, I've never seen anything like that before. It wasn't a flying knee, and it wasn't off of a clinch. It was just he he waded in, and Aldo timed it perfectly and was able to bring his knee up high enough to, to catch him in the chin. Um, one of the more unique knockouts I've seen in a, in a little while. And uh, as far as Jose Aldo goes, here's how good this guy is or how good they think he can be. He was supposed to fight Uriah Faber on this card. That was all the speculation, uh, you know, leading up for a couple months before they announced uh, Penn, or excuse me, uh, Pulver versus uh, Faber 2. Um, but the WEC was so scared of Uriah Faber losing two fights in a row that they gave him Jens Pulver instead and has had Jose Aldo fight a debuting fighter. So that's what they think of this guy, and and the the possibilities for fights coming out of this card are are fantastic. Um, Obviously, Faber will get the next fight, the next title fight, but you know Jose Aldo is is probably one more fight away from from earning himself a title shot, and we just might get to see that Faber uh, Aldo fight in a and you know maybe six months down the road or something like that. So. Great uh, opening fight and impressive win, and that's that's how you that's how you make your mark. I think you set Aldo Aldo up against the loser of the Brown Garcia fight, and the winner of that one gets the shot at, at the winner of Faber, and the winner of that one once Faber gets his title shot. I think that's the way you set up Aldo next because he's definitely ready to get right in the mix at the at the top of that division. Um, like you said, Jason, I know you liked the post fight celebration. Where were you at on the fight? Uh, this fight was fantastic. Great way to open the televised portion of the card. Um, Perez was outgunned, but give him a lot of credit for being a game opponent that showed no fear. And he was just scorched with that knee. Um, as far as the future for Aldo, um, had Pulver been able to put forth a commendable showing against Faber, I would go as far as to say, eh, maybe have Pulver out. No way in hell. I sincerely hope not. That would be just a death knell for Pulver. Um, Aldo deserves to be next after Faber, you know, regains his belt. I do believe that is a given. I I like the idea of Aldo against either Brown or Garcia, you know, the loser of the bout. I think that's fantastic, and then it sets up something, you know, towards the fall as far as a big showdown of Aldo and Faber. Uh, Aldo is a superstar in the making, and Aldo-Faber is going to be explosive. I think it could be even more than what Pulver and, and Faber 1 was. I really think it has potential of being, you know, best fight in the WEC history. I truly believe that. I think the two are going to be capable of doing that. Uh, it was a great showing. It was a great way to introduce himself to some fans who maybe weren't familiar with him. And, you know, post-fight, it was nice to see a guy give a damn and care but not do anything to try and show up his opponent. This was merely, I trained so hard. I did my job very well, and damn it, it feels good. Feel good with me, and it was a great moment. This is when it's great to to watch the guys celebrate because it's a great feeling. You know, it's that damn it, you want to fight. You're passionate about it. You did your job, and this guy's a stud. Frank Mir would definitely call him a stud. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to toss the next two fights in here together with Neil Fort uh, defeating Mike Campbell with a first round TKO and Scott Jorgensen getting a beautiful standing guillotine on Frank Gomez to win a minute into their uh, their bout. But um, 
Villafort here took the best that Campbell gave him, and Campbell's a powerful fighter at, at uh, welterweight, but he doesn't have the full-on skill set of an MMA fighter yet. But, I mean, he, he rocked Villafort with a big slam early and, uh, you know, was avoiding some of Villafort's ground game for a little while, but um, his inexperience got to him, and he finally gave up, uh, got mounted, gave up the back, and couldn't intelligently defend himself. He was just covering up the back of his head, wasn't getting hit the hardest, but he wasn't doing anything that uh, would make the, the ref want to allow him to going. And finally he stopped it uh, just under four minutes into that round. And then Scott Jorgensen and Frank Gomez. Gomez had a lot of height on Jorgensen and Jorgensen out-wrestled him into getting that guillotine and pushed him up against the cage and held it. Um, well, he was on his feet, and it was just a, a, a great submission from Jorgensen. And were it not for Faber's submission of Pulver later, could have garnered him the, the submission of the night. But, uh, Jason, your thoughts on these two middle-of-the-card fights? Uh, Villafort Campbell, uh, for what it was, was, was fun to watch. Uh, Campbell is just ridiculously huge and, and strong, and he's ignorant. And what I mean, he just truly doesn't know. He needs a lot of work before he becomes a mixed martial artist. He, he's an athlete, he's strong, he's got the will, but he just didn't know what to do and he wasn't able to do it and just flattened himself out, put his hands on his head, and the referee gave him every single chance to do something, but he had to wave it off. Villafort uh, you know, looked good in beating you know, an undefeated fighter, but undefeated against who, and uh, you know, gets the chance to shine you know, on a future card. Uh, He's an American top team product. Uh, he's got a win over Mike Masenzio. He's a solid fighter, and, you know, he got a nice win. As far as Jorgensen Gomez, this was awesome. This was absolutely an awesome performance by Jorgensen. I, I was way off in my prediction. I had Gomez by third-round submission, and Jorgensen finished this thing off at a minute and nine seconds. Uh, this was picture-perfect guillotine choke, ended the fight. Uh, no choice but to tap uh, you know, Jorgensen looked like a world beater in, in uh, dismantling Frank Gomez, and especially so with the you know the huge difference in height. Uh, it was fun to watch. It was a nice commercial for the for the bantamweight division. You know, a little over a minute. Uh, this was it was fun. It was a fun two fights, uh, action packed, and again decidedly different from the Affliction show because this is just wham, wham, wham with with a lot of great stuff to watch, fun stuff. Uh, you know. Definite finishes, uh, maybe not the most compelling matchups, but this was just a, a great run of two fights. Uh, it was fun. This was fun to watch. Uh, Villafort and Jorgensen looked great, and it was a nice time. Matt, your thoughts on these two fights? I, I think the uh, the Villafort Camel fight was maybe the most exciting one one round fight I've I've ever seen. Uh, when it was on the feet, Campbell was throwing bombs, and he was connecting with him and rocking Villafort pretty consistently, did three or four times. And when that fight got to the ground, anybody who, who claims that, you know, who, who's still a little new to the sport and says, you know, I think the ground game is boring, watch that fight. Villafort went from submission to submission to submission like no one I have ever seen in my life. And And maybe he's not, you know, elite of the elite world class on the ground. 
But if you get to the ground and you just throw everything that you know out there, kind of like uh, Nate Diaz does when he does when he fights, uh, that scares people. And, and Mike Campbell, you know, obviously, if you're on top, that's generally considered a dominant position. But when you are spending every second fighting off a submission, you don't want to be there, and that's going to scare the crap out of somebody. They're not going to want to go to the ground. They're going to be so scared of your shot that's going to open up your 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 hands you'll be able to let your hand slide because they're going to be scared of you shooting in on them. So um, very impressive performance by Villafort. Um, I honestly think he's, uh, I mean, we we uh, complain about how, how thin some divisions in Affliction are because they're kind of non-existent, but there's really not any viable contenders left for Carlos Condit. Uh, we've had to, you know, rehash the Brock Larson uh, fight again which is a good fight, but I think Connor will win that once again. Why not go ahead and, and throw Villafort in there? I, I mean, there's nobody else really I see waiting in the wings for it, and, and this was a, a very good showcase fight for him, uh, showing the fans. I have no idea what the fans were booing him for. Um, I don't understand how you can boo a guy that was that impressive in a performance, but uh, that's their problem. Um, as far as the Jorgensen-Gomez fight, the one word I can think that comes to mind is Jorgensen was just a bully in this fight. Uh, he just overpowered, <laughs> overmatched him. And, and, you know, Frank Gomez needs to realize if a guy has you in that kind of guillotine and then gets his arm up around like that, you're in some trouble. And you needed to do something <laughs> to get out of that trouble. And he didn't. And it was over just like that. And, I mean, throw the guy a freaking bone here. He's a, you know, a little guy fighting on the undercard who who just so happened to get his fight televised because he was so impressive and it only took him a minute Give him the bonus. I'm sure Uriah Faber can can spare the money. He makes plenty of endorsements and out of his contract. Give the little guy the 7,500 bucks. Um, so yeah, great great performances by both guys, and I'm excited to see both of them next time around. Well, and uh, Matt, you might have seen this then this afternoon, but the but Brock Larson has come up with an injury, and that fight is off. Carlos Condit is going to be making his UFC debut. Really? And it very well may come against Martin Campman at Fight Night 18. So That's the greatest news I've heard all day. <laughs> and uh, the, also, the, the rumored news with that, along with that is that um, the welterweight division, because there's no one there to really challenge for a, a that title that Condit held, if if your champion is leaving there, you don't have much of a division. That division is going to be most likely, more than likely, folded up along with uh, what happened with the middleweights and the light heavyweights. And you've got the flyweight division coming into the WEC. So the welterweight division will most more than likely be no more in the WEC. And Carlos Condit will be finally making his UFC debut and if it is indeed against Martin Campman, it will be the main event of Fight Night 18 on April 1st, and that card might be the greatest free card that they've ever put together, plain and simple. Um, and it's it's looking more more and more like that's the case uh, as we go along here. So that brings us up to Uriah Faber and Jens Pulver from Sunday night. We've talked about it already. It was not very long. Faber just unloaded on Jens from the outset, rocked him with just a devastating, devastating left hand to the body. 
that Jens, I mean, Frank, Frank Mir thought that Jens was faking to try to get Uriah to come in and do something. That wasn't a fake. That was, oh my God, he just broke my ribs. I'm done. That's what that was. Uriah Faber just dominated Jens from the outset and locked in a beautiful side guillotine once he got down to the ground. And, um, I mean, this was Uriah Faber with everything back in in terms of motivation. I mean, he tasted defeat for the first time in years, and now he's motivated to get his title back. And a motivated Uriah Faber is not someone I would want to be in the way of Plain and simple. Um, Matt, any other thoughts on the on the favorite pulver fight? Well, I already gave kind of gave my uh, my thoughts on the fight itself, but I just want to say I love uh, after the fight the the kind of Tommy Dreamer retirement swerve speech we got from from Jens Pulver. Uh, you know, I, I, it seemed like everybody was just kind of given away that he was going to announce his retirement right there. And then he pulled a fast one on us and said he's going to stick around, which, you know, good for him. If that's what he loves to do, then why not let him keep doing it? Um, it's not like he's not an exciting fighter still. Um, and he hasn't, uh, other than, uh, you know, getting knocked out pretty cold by Leonard Garcia, it's not like we've seen him unconscious on the mat one too many times like a, like a Vanderlei Silva. Um, he, I think he's... He's still got some name value, and he can kind of be a a gatekeeper for their 145-pound division and still make him a few bucks and make himself a few bucks. So um, good for Jens that he's kind of bucking the trend and, and saying this is what I love to do, so I'm going to keep doing it. I just hope it doesn't turn ugly at some point and he you know overstays his welcome. Um, maybe fight a couple more times and then and then see what you can do within the sport that's not within the cage. Yeah. Not not a bad idea there. And actually, it, uh, that was, like you said, that was a great post-fight speech from um, from Jens and, you know, very emotional for him. He, he took in the crowd response and then dropped the third of four very clear F-bombs of the night and said, F that, I'm not done. Um, I'm very surprised that after the first one, they didn't try to put that on a seven-second delay uh, to catch that because it happened three more times at least. Uh, on that card on Sunday, including after the the main event bout. But Jason, anything more to add on uh, Faber Pulver here? Nothing more to add, other than the fact that I do agree that Pulver deserves the opportunity to make his decision. Um, he's meant a lot to the WEC. He definitely deserves another payday. He is a name that will draw eyes and attention. He's a great ambassador for the sport. I sincerely hope they would not put him in there with an Aldo. But uh, if this is what he wants to do and is focused on doing so, he's good for the WEC, they're good to him, and you know maybe he gets one more try out there. And if he crumbles like he did, then it might be time for everybody to collectively you know, tell him to hang him up. But for right now, I think he, he deserves the respect of being able to make that decision for himself. I think the Uriah Faber he met on, on this night is a guy that he may have never been able to beat I think Faber was just on point ridiculously, and this is the best I've ever seen of Uriah Faber. This guy looks fresh, motivated, dedicated. Um, I didn't expect them to revisit their fight of the year, but I did expect there to be a lot more give and take, and after that body shot, it you just knew it was over. 
that body shot decimated him and, and just split him in half. And uh, Faber's that damn good. I think Fulber, Fulber is an older fighter, especially so in the featherweight division, but Faber is on another level, and he definitely is the best in the world at featherweight. That brought us to the main event of the evening, the WEC lightweight title on the line with Jamie Varner taking on the challenger, Donald Cerrone. And uh, Cowboy's a star in the making here in this fight. Uh, the first two rounds of this fight were two of the best rounds I've seen in a long time, put together by two guys just absolutely going at it. It kind of slowed down in the third and the fourth round and then obviously had uh, the bad ending. But the first round, just absolutely right out of the gate, going at each other, uh, exchanging leg kicks, exchanging punches. Uh, then Varner gets a takedown after uh, a, a big blow and a, a couple more su- successive shots that uh, tossed Cerrone back. He shot in, took Cerrone down, and just absolutely unleashed a ton of ground and pound and a ton of shots in this round. Um, Cerrone managed to get back to his feet a couple of times but got taken down at will by Varner throughout this fight, but especially in this first round. And, and Varner just threw everything that he could at Cerrone. And with a welt the size of a golf ball protruding from his forehead, Cerrone kept pushing forward and uh, and kept going. Second round was a lot more of the same with Varner being able to take Cerrone down and lay in punishment. Cerrone was able to uh, get back to his feet and get some more shots in in this round. Uh, he had a lot more offense in this round, but Varner, again, able to take him down at will and able to get some big shots in there. Um, Cerrone, if he would have had 15 seconds more in this second round, would have won the fight there. He locked in a triangle with about 10 seconds left in the second round, and it was in tight. Varner was in trouble. If he had another 10 to 15 seconds to... Um, squeezed out that victory. He would have finished Varner here, but it was not to be. It was not meant to be, and and Varner survived by the bell. Slowed down a bit in both the third and the fourth round. Great show of respect with uh, hugging it out in the third and as well as the fifth. Um, but the third and fourth round were very simple. It was Cerrone walking down Varner, um, making him back up. Varner coming in with a, a punch here and there that was landing in nice selective spots. He was, again, able to take down Cerrone at will. That was kind of the the key to, to what happened here is he was able to take Cerrone down at will, and Cerrone had no takedown defense uh, against Varner here. That was one of the main uh, reasons Varner eked out the decision at the end. Um, but third and fourth round, very similar. Uh, Cerrone got in some... Uh, some punishment and some punches and some blows himself, but the takedowns were the real key and Varner continued to do it. Uh, he, and he was getting in shots here and there. Um, definitely seemed to be wondering what he would need to do to finish off Cerrone here. We get to round five. This was Cerrone coming out knowing he had nothing else to lose. And he finally gets a takedown on Varner. Um, and then with Varner up against the cage, Cerrone throws a knee. Um, there's going to be a lot of debate on this. I know, Jason, you saw it one, uh, differently than I did here. Um, what I saw on replay was that it seemed like, like the knee could have hit the side of Varner's eye 
that could have been why he was saying he couldn't see. Um, I'd like to give the champ the benefit of the doubt on this, but either way, he went down in a heap of pain from the knee saying that he couldn't see. Um, they finally pushed it to the judges' scorecards because Varner could not continue. Um, and and it went to a decision. We got an actual decision. It was not a DQ. It was not a no contest because uh, the, the knee was accidental. And Varner picked up a split decision victory, which I don't understand how the one judge had it 48-47 for uh, Cerrone when both of the others had it 49-46 for Varner. Um, it's kind of the case of Rich Franklin getting 30-27 to 27 against Henderson two weeks ago. That made zero sense. Um, but Jamie Varner was winning this fight. He couldn't continue in the fifth round. He picked split decision victory. Wasn't happy about it himself. You can say that maybe he was trying to get the no contest or the DQ. You can call him out and say Cerrone was seeing double through the fight. You can say whatever you want. Varner was winning the fight. He won the fight fair and square. Even if Cerrone would have won that fifth round, I don't think there's any way he was going to finish Varner in that round. But even if he would have won it on the scorecards, he wasn't winning the fight overall. So in the end, it came down to Varner won the first four rounds. That's all that mattered. Um, We're going to see them fight again. Plain and simple, we are going to see them fight again. We get to see them for another five-round battle if they they so choose. Again, I'm giving Varner the benefit of the doubt and saying something happened with the eye. He was hurt. He couldn't continue. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that's what happened with the champ. Jason, I know you saw it differently. What were your thoughts on the the finish to this main event and the fight itself? Well, on the finish, as as far as how I see it, I I do believe Varner did the right thing. Uh, You're the champion. Uh, Would it have done any good for him to have continued on, possibly gotten knocked out, finished off, is the crowd going to say, wow, you, you really showed your medal? No. The crowd's going to say, you know, wow, Donald Cerrone's the new champ. So Varner did the smart thing. As far as the eye, I look back to like Franklin Henderson at 93. Rich's eye was visibly bad. He really shouldn't have continued, but he continued because he knew he may be well behind on points and needed to finish. I think Varner was like, you know what? I'm ahead where this could possibly be a no contest. Maybe I know I'm not able to see properly. I got to do the smart thing and fight another day. And he did win this fight. Uh, especially the first round, I scored 10-8 for Varner. This was complete dominance. And the fact that Cerrone was able to come back in the manner he did was nothing short of, of shocking. Cerrone is, is quite a beast and one hell of a fighter. Uh, Varner is nothing to sneer at, but I think a lot of people expected it to be pretty one-sided you know, for Varner. Uh, the rematch is going to be great. I don't know if it'll be able to top this. I think Varner now realizes the kind of guy he's going to be facing in Cerrone, but uh, the rematch should be impressive. Uh, yeah, I had the fight scored. Uh, I had it for uh, you know 48-46 for Varner convincingly. Uh, it was the right decision by him to fight another day, but I do believe it was more of a calculated decision than I do of I can't see. There's no way I can competently defend myself. I think it was a smart decision, but it was one weighted on the fact of, look, I'm winning this fight, and why do something stupid, which is the smart thing to do. Uh, The right man won the fight. He won all night long. Cerrone is going to have to do a lot more in the future as far as being able to defend that takedown. Uh, He showed a lot of spunk, a lot of fire. 
the second fight is going to be different because both fighters know what the other guy has. It's going to be great to see where the next chapter takes it. Warner's uh, a solid champion, and again, he did the right thing, but I do question whether or not he could see, and it feels more of a calculated move to take less risk and walk away with the belt than it would have been to do something stupid and possibly lose to a fired-up Cerrone and have nothing to show for it. It was the right thing to do. That's not a bad take at all, Jason, not a bad take at all. Matt, your thoughts on the on the main event here? Well, if we were were talking Sunday night immediately after the event, I think I probably would have felt differently. But as I've had a few days to kind of calm down about it and think about it, you know, I also have to give the champ uh, the benefit of the doubt. Um, I mean, he he fought a war for five rounds, um, so I I can't fault him for not being able to continue after taking a knee on the ground. Um, he beat the living piss out of Donald Cerrone in that first round. Um, I I can't believe Cerrone survived that. Um, you know, second round, Cerrone, yeah, at 10 more seconds, he had that locked in. That fight was done. But that's the rules that, that they play by, and you can't really, you know, argue about that. Um, I would be more frustrated if, if we were left to say you know, three minutes left to go in the fifth round, and, and Cerrone was really starting to look good, and, and who knows what might have happened, but we don't have to say we'll never know because we're going to see the fight again. So, um, you know, if, if Varner starts making excuses and ducking Cerrone when the the rematch is supposed to take place, then I'll start questioning things. But as of right now, he came out and said, you know, I absolutely will, will do it again immediately as soon as I'm ready to go. So, um Great fight, only marred by the ending, um, but even still, it was a great fight. Um, kind of reminds me of the Robbie Lawler Scott Smith fight, where you know they went three great rounds and then had a kind of a bogus ending, but we got to see him do it again, and it was a decisive conclusion that we'd been waiting for. And I have no doubt that they're going to do it again. And I honestly think the next fight will be finished somewhere within about three rounds. I don't think they'll go five. Um, but we're going to get to see, you know, who really is the better man. And Jamie Varner looked great, but he gave Cerrone everything he had, and Cerrone just kept coming. Um, my only question to Donald Cerrone is, you train with George St. Pierre. How is your takedown defense that bad? Um, <laughs> great point. Maybe it's, it's, it's a fact that, you know, he's so comfortable off of his back that he doesn't care about getting taken down. But still, coming from a kickboxing background, you know, he was, he was a pro kickboxer before he got an MMA. You would think he would want to keep it on his feet if he can, especially being a guy that can take that much punishment. So um, I can't wait to see the rematch. And even despite the the finish, it was still a great fight to cap off a great event. Absolutely. Well, guys, it was a it was an epic weekend with a lot of live action, and uh, we've got. The biggest fight of the, the the biggest fight of the month, the biggest card of the month, still upcoming this weekend. But um, any final thoughts on this past weekend uh, as we wrap up this this epic, epic epically long audio that we've been uh, continuing on for some time here, uh, Matt? Any final thoughts on the weekend? Well, you know, very good weekend, uh, perfect appetizer for the weekend coming up. And you know, for anybody who who hasn't figured out yet or doesn't know, I'm a a huge Ohio State fan and whenever they would play, whoever they play the week before Michigan, as, as soon as that game ends, you say, well, 
it's Michigan week. And I figured as soon as WEC ended, I said to myself, well, it's it's uh, Penn GSP week. So time to start getting excited for that. And we're, you know, almost halfway through the week. So time to get the, the hype cranked back up for the fight this Saturday and uh, starts tomorrow with uh, UFC primetime, which I can't wait for. So uh, good things, good things are coming. Absolutely. Jason, any final thoughts? If the audio has to match the, the epic nature of the fights or the fight card, uh, we're going to have to be on here for a couple of days and wear some adult diapers after 94 because it's, <laughs> it's going to be that good. It's going to be that special. This was a fantastic weekend. Um, Affliction was serviceable. WEC was fantastic for free. You can't knock that at all. And it is a perfect appetizer to what should be one hell of a meal at UFC 94. And we're going to have to get our Ricolas and a comfy chair because we're going to be doing audio for about three weeks or so after that one. Just going to have long beards and Rip Van Winkle stuff going on. And that's going to be good stuff. Again, this is a great time to be an MMA fan. And it's fantastic for us to cover it because it makes it so easy. It's easy to cover it when when it's this good. We're fans of it. We love it. And it's just running at such a a high rate of speed, so many revolutions per minute, that it's getting better. And it will do so. And UFC 94 should be fantastic in every sense of of the word. Absolutely. And thank you guys again for joining me on audio today. And we will talk to you again this week as we preview Saturday's UFC 94 card. Um, Of course, episode three of UFC primetime airs tomorrow night, which has been a great show. So definitely check that out on Spike TV and uh, keep an eye out for Jason's previews of the fights this weekend, as well as more previews and predictions from the rest of our torch staff here. And uh, UFC 94 comes up on Saturday. So we will have a preview audio up uh, before that show airs this week. So Thank you for listening once again, and guys, thanks for joining me again. Thank you.